0: But um, today is our uh, first Sunday of of Advent, and so uh, each year we uh, we do things a little bit differently. It was funny. I was talking to Pastor David because he was like are there rules about what you're supposed to do? And I said, no, there's not. Uh, but, you know, we, we sometimes have the traditional, you have to have this and this, and then the one candle's different, and your themes must be joy, hope, peace, and, and love. And those are all great things, but um, usually what we've done here is we'll pick some kind of, of theme. If you remember last year, our theme for all four weeks of Advent was hope. Because it felt like in the season that we were in as a society is that we really needed to talk about hope. Um, so this year, our, our theme for the year is a simple Christmas, recovering the humble story of the birth of Jesus. Um, the reason, as I thought about uh, earlier this year, about what we were going to talk about at Christmas, I think sometimes, if you're like most normal, you know, Westerners, um, Christmas becomes if we're not careful, very, very busy, and very, very complicated. Um, we, whether it's with your decorations, and you have to deck out your house, and listen, if you've driven by my house, you're like, Andrew, and I know, I'm, I want to be the brightest house on my street, but we do that, the, and then we stress about what presents to buy, and we have to find the perfect gift for every person, and many of us are like, man, how are we going to afford this? Or, or there's just meals and parties that we go to. Some of you at Christmas it brings up a lot of family issues. You're like, I have to go see that family member or whatever it is. And there can be conflict at Christmas because you take you know, all of our dysfunctional families and you put them all together. And, and you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But if you're not careful, we just become so busy and so uh, overcomplicated that we kind of you know, miss it maybe. Um, even the Christmas story... And I've probably talked about this before, but I just laugh at how we have hallmarked the Christmas narrative or, you know, romanticized it. And it's this just cute little story. Um, even last night at the uh, adult Christmas banquet, there was a, uh, a little questionnaire and then you could win prizes and things like that. And some of the questions, they were trick questions. So whoever did that was a, a trickster. But there were questions that made you go, okay, wait, is this actually in the Bible, or is this just like tradition, right? The, one of the questions was, how did Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? And everyone's like, well, obviously a donkey. That's not in the Bible. And, we, and I, I was sitting at the table, is it a donkey? Oh, man, I can't remember, right? What, what animals were in the stable with them? And someone uh, was like, well, I know for sure it's sheep. And then wasn't there a cow mentioned? We're never told. Were there animals or not? I don't know. Right? Some have said, well, you have the idea of the nativity scene and the shepherds show up and then the wise men show up. And there's three because there were three gifts. And the wise men weren't there at the birth. They were there two years later. And we don't, there could have been a hundred wise men. We have no idea. Right, but we've like romanticized and hallmarked this perfect nativity scene that some of it is actually not in scripture. I always laugh when we sing the song, like, like the baby Jesus, no crying he makes. I'm like, have you met a newborn? They cry all the time. And this idea that like, Jesus has a halo around him, and of course he never cried, he was the perfect baby. So, how do we get back to just kind of a simple Christmas, just remembering this very, very humble way that the Son of God came into the world. There is a simplicity in the Christmas narrative. And I, as I was talking with staff, like apart from the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, like obviously it was a miracle by God. But apart from that, it's, it's quite a normal, simple story. So this morning, what we want to do is look at Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can can flip there. And we're actually going to look at the genealogy in the first 17 verses. And how Matthew begins his gospel is with a list of names Um, leading from Abraham um, all the way up to Joseph, Who was considered Jesus' legal earthly father? Now we know that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but in that culture, that didn't really matter. If if you asked, well, who was Jesus' dad? Everyone would have said, well, legally it's Joseph. And so the genealogy in the gospel of Matthew, how Matthew begins his gospel is he gives this list of names going from Abraham all the way up to to Joseph. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, look, here is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever done that where you've looked into your own family tree or your own genealogy. Some of you have maybe done the ancestry thing or the 23andMe or whatever it is. And you see maybe a little bit of where you came from or who your family is. And I'm sure that if you're like me, as you dig into your family tree, you go, interesting. There are some very interesting characters that uh, are in my family. I remember my dad a few years ago, went he went back and he did his our whole family tree. And I think he went back. It was at least the 1500s, maybe the 1400s. And all of these names and people. And then you see interesting things and you're like, well, interesting. That marriage. What happened here? And then that is not the biological mother of that person. Oh my goodness, what is happening? And you often see a lot of mess in your genealogies. Or maybe you're on, it's just mine. The E.B. family is very weird. Um, But we look at our family trees and our genealogies and sometimes you go, man, there are a lot of maybe scandals. There's a lot of brokenness in all of our family trees, Now, why would Matthew begin his gospel this way? Um, Mark and Luke and John, I mean, Luke mentions a a genealogy of Jesus a little bit later. He doesn't start his gospel that way. And the reason is genealogies were super important in that day and age. Um, The Jews kept extensive genealogies to establish a few things. You, You wanted to know your heritage. You wanted to know your inheritance, and then your legitimacy as a, you know, son or daughter, and then your rights. What rights do I get from the family that I came from? And so this is not odd for Matthew to start his book this way. Now, what's odd is the people that are included in the genealogy. Because if you would think, okay, this is the son of God's genealogy, it would probably be pretty impressive, right? Right? And so we're going to see uh, who exactly is in this list. So Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtil, and Shealtil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The reading of God's Word. Um, If you ever have to read biblical names, just read them fast and with confidence, (laughs) I had a, uh, a seminary professor who told me that. So many of you, you might be wondering, okay, man, oh man, that's a lot of names. And what on earth are we going to pull out of this text? And so in verse 1, Matthew begins by just saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. And then he just mentions two names, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And you will go, well, why, why did... Matthew, just include those two titles, those two names. Why is it important that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham? And a couple of reasons. Uh, David, or rather, Jesus being the son of David means that he comes from a royal lineage. And the Messiah was promised that he would come from the line of David. And so that's why Matthew begins. He goes, Hey, Jesus comes from David's line, he's a son of David. And secondly, the son of Abraham, that simply emphasized God's covenant with Abraham. The Messiah was going to be uh, from the Jewish people. He was an Israelite. And so th- that's why Matthew begins that way. The son of David and the son of Abraham saying, hey, as you read the Old Testament, look, Jesus fulfilled both of those Prophetic words. He is in the line of David. He's royalty, and he's also in the line, of, uh, line of, of Abraham. He's Jewish. He comes from the Israelites. Now, the genealogy is kind of split into three different sections. We have from Abraham to David, that covers one span of history, we have from David all the way up to the exile when the Jews were taken to Babylon, and then you have from the return uh, from the exile leading up to, to Joseph. So, even if we just walk through each section, even in the first section, we, we recognize a, a lot of names, right? But there's characters with, with questionable backgrounds or things that they did. I mean, we all know Abraham, verse 2, Abraham is the father of the Israelites. He's the one whom, whom God came to and said, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? Very important. But if you dig a little bit into it, um, there was some stuff that Abraham did that, that wasn't so great. Remember, God came to Abram and Sarah and said, hey, I'm going to give you a son, even though they were very old and they were beyond, you know, having children those years of your life. And so God said, no, I'm going to give you a a son. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so uh, Abraham and Sarah, it was taking a little bit too long. And so they schemed up a plan. They said, well, we're going to take Hagar, our servant, and Abraham, you're going to have a kid with her. And that's how we'll bring a a son into the world. Um, Even if you read uh, in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, twice Abraham is traveling And he's worried that his wife is so beautiful that people are going to kill him and take her uh, to, like, steal her. And so twice Abraham lies and says, no, I'm not married to her. She's just my sister. So even the father, right, of the Israelites, in many ways the father, one of the fathers of the faith, had some shady stuff that he did. He wasn't perfect, I mean, you get to Jacob, right, in, in verse 2 as well. Jacob, the father of Judah, and we know the stories of Jacob. Jacob, his name literally means deceiver. <laughs> Sorry if your name's Jacob. Uh, it literally means deceiver, and you go, well, what, what was he uh, uh, about, right? His twin brother, um, Esau, and, and, and Jacob swindles the birthright and the inheritance, if you remember, Right? He, he His father is losing his eyesight, and so he puts you know hairy uh, animal uh, clothes on, and, and he, he pretends to be Esau to steal the blessing from his dad. And then he runs away, because obviously Esau is very mad, and then he goes. And remember, he sees Rachel, and he falls in love, and his uncle says, you have to work seven years. And then Jacob is tricked, and he accidentally marries Leah. And then he works seven more years to marry Rachel, And then when he leaves, he actually swindles his uncle out of all of the the flocks that he have. I mean, Jacob, there's some good in him, but I mean, he was kind of a deceit. He was a bad guy. He tricked a lot of people. Then you get to Judah, right? Jacob, the father of Judah. And then it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And we, we all know Judah, right? We know the story because even Jesus, one of his titles is he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we go, Judah must have been a good guy. Um, Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. That's who Tamar is. Like he was, he was tricked, but he thought that Tamar was a prostitute, which doesn't make it any better. But he slept with his daughter-in-law, and she had twin boys, Perez and Zerah, who are included in Jesus' genealogy. Um, Tamar, on top of that, wasn't an Israelite. She was most likely a Canaanite. And if you know the stories, the Canaanites were the sworn enemies of God. So here we have a Canaanite woman in the genealogy of Jesus through this terrible, sinful, depraved thing that happened. I mean, you get to Rahab, In verse 5, Boaz, his mother, was Rahab. This is most likely Rahab the prostitute. Uh, If you remember in Joshua uh, 2, verse 1, they're going to go into the promised land, and it says this, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. So we have a prostitute who is also a Canaanite, Rahab, included in the genealogy of of Jesus. So now you have two Gentile women in Jesus' family. Then you have Ruth, right? Boaz was the father of Obed by by Ruth, and Ruth was not an Israelite either. Ruth was a Moabite, and if you know, uh, the Moabites Uh, were hated by the Israelites and looked down on because the Moabites, their lineage came from Lot's incestuous relationship with his own daughter. That's where the Moabites come from, and Ruth is a Moabite, and she's included in this genealogy, the father of um, Obed. And then we're told, finally, it leads up to King David, So already, I mean, you look in those few short verses and you see this lineage of people leading up to Joseph, I mean, you'll already have several scandals, several kind of questionable people. You have Gentiles mixing in with Israelites, and and there's just so much mess and brokenness already in these first few generations. Then you move into this next section, which describes uh, the, the time period from King David all the way up to the exile, so... Uh, hundreds of years, and we, know, we all know King David, right? King David uh, was, was called a man after God's own heart, and he did many, many good things, right? He loved the Lord, but we're also told in this genealogy, if you, you might have missed it, but it says King David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and you go, uh-oh, it wasn't his own wife. And so many of you already know the story, right? David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, uh, who is Uriah's wife. And not only that, Bathsheba gets pregnant, and so then David goes into damage control mode, and okay, I'm going to bring Bathsheba's husband home so that they can sleep together and maybe we'll fool people into, no, it's actually his child, and then I'm going to arrange to have Uriah murdered, right? We're going to say in the army, everyone charge, but then all the other soldiers are going to pull back, and it'll just be Uriah, and he'll clearly get killed, and then David's kind of like, problem solved, right? Right? So that's who's included in this genealogy, David's adulterous affair and the the son that was born from that. Then you have King Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. I mean, he did, King Solomon did amazing things, possessed great wisdom, but he also married 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. Uh, In 1 Kings 11, uh, verses 3 and 4, speaking of Solomon, it says, He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So amidst all of Solomon's wisdom, his desire to have so many wives and so many women, what happened is that his heart was turned away from, from God. And then essentially, the the rest of these names before we get to the exile, it's just a list of kings, and it kind of goes back and forth between, okay, he was a bad king, he was a good king, he was a bad king, he was a good king. But Matthew just kind of includes uh, all of them. He doesn't try and whitewash anything. I mean, you get to Rehoboam uh, after Solomon. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 12:1, it says this when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord, and all Israel with him. Um, you get to Abijah, who's next, and he is described as a wicked king. First Kings 15:3. He walked, this is Abijah, in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Um, you get to Asaph. Asaph is actually described as a good king. You get to Jehoshaphat. He's described as, well, he kind of started out good, but then he turned wicked at the end. You have Joram, who's described as evil. Sorry, Joram. I think I saw you this morning. Um, you have Uzziah, who's described as, okay, Uzziah was a good king, but at the end, he got really proud and full of himself. You have Jotham who's described as, okay, he was a good king. You have Ahaz who was an evil king who actually burned his own son as an offering to a false god. Then you have Manasseh included in verse 10 and he, he might be the most evil king that Israel ever saw. Look at what it says about him in 2 Kings 21. This is about Manasseh. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and he made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them and he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I mean, this is in the genealogy. Manasseh, the most evil king. You have Amos next, who's described as evil. You have Josiah, who's then described as good. And you have Jeconiah who we're told was so evil that he was actually cursed by God. Now I'm not uh, telling you all this to bum you out, like Merry Christmas, <laughs> but this is who is in Jesus' family tree. This is his lineage, right? Matthew includes this to start the gospel of Jesus. This is who is included. Um, lastly, in verses 12 to 17, you have a, a time period described when the Israelites returned from exile leading up until the birth of Jesus. And here's what's interesting about this section is that we know almost nothing about all these people. I mean, we know a lot about all of these first two sections that we've read, right? Because we, we read all the stories about them. But from, from the exile, when, when they returned from the exile onward, we just know hardly anything about these people besides Jeconiah, Shealtiel, and Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in the book of Zechariah. I mean, the rest aren't even mentioned in the Bible besides right here. So we know nothing about these people. And you would go, well, that's interesting that we have unknown people that lived, died, are gone, and there's no record and no memory of anything that they did. They're just nobodies. I mean, like, honestly, what do you know about Azor and Zadok and Achim and Matthew? We know nothing about these people until we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the one who, who bore Jesus. So what is the point of of Matthew doing this? Why does he include this this list of of people in Jesus' family tree? it's, It's an odd way, isn't it, to kind of start into the greatest story ever told, the greatest true story of the birth of Jesus to include this genealogy of all of these messed up, sinful, broken people. So a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, um, you just you just see that Jesus' family tree is messy. It's full of questionable characters, full of sinful people, full of scandals, just like all of our family trees. Now here's the difference: because of the virgin birth, Jesus is untouched by sin. He's sinless. Right, the, the, A sin nature was not passed down to him through his father because Joseph is not his biological father. So, Jesus is untouched by all this sin, but, but the fact remains, his legal earthly father, Joseph, comes from a long line of sinful, broken people. So, first off, think about it. If the gospel writers were attempting to make up a story about the Savior of the world... Why on earth would they include all of this? Why not pick better people (laughs) to include in the family? I mean, if you're making up a story, right, why why not include way better people or just make up people that had a perfect record? You're like, hey, this this is the lineage of Jesus. Let's just make up perfect people. Right? Why would they include prostitutes and Gentiles and liars and deceivers and murderers and child sacrificers? Why would they include these people? Because that's how it happened. Right? So first off, I think actually the genealogy in Matthew points to the credibility of the Bible and the Gospels because no one in their right mind attempting to scam the world Would have included all of this mess and brokenness. And Matthew includes this genealogy because this is what happened. We don't don't need to whitewash it. This is this is exactly who, and this is exactly what happened. So that's first off, I think it points to the truth of the story of Jesus. Secondly, I think you can see God's hand at work throughout time to accomplish his purposes in redemption through his son Jesus. I mean, you look at the mess of humanity from Genesis 3 on, you look at the mess of humanity and you can clearly see God working through all of that mess to bring about his plan. You you cannot look even just at this genealogy in Matthew 1 and you can't come to the conclusion that, well, God's not involved. You, you can't say, well, God's not providential over human history. You can't just look at this genealogy and go, man, it was really lucky that this all happened through all of this mess that led to Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus. You, you can't say that. You clearly see God providentially working out his plan of salvation throughout history in the midst of mess and sin and brokenness and evil. Then Jesus comes into the world. So what this means is that God's plan will not and cannot be thwarted. You can't stop God's plan. And he uses sinful, broken people to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Thirdly, Jesus' genealogy, I believe it shows us the reason that Jesus had to come. I mean, you read even in a little bit later in Matthew, in Matthew 1, verse 21, um, the angel says, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then even in Luke 19, 10, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So you read Matthew 1 and this list of names And all the stories of sin and depravity and brokenness connected to these names. And I think the conclusion would be if you just read this list of names, the conclusion should be man, we need a savior. (laughs) Like, we desperately need someone to help us. Humanity is just stuck in sin and in brokenness and depravity. I mean, look at this list of names and all of the sin and brokenness represented by all of these people throughout the the years. We need a Savior. We need someone to come and fix this. I mean, besides Matthew 1, you look at your own family tree and I look at my family and we should arrive at the same conclusion Man, we need a Savior. We need someone to, to help us. We're just stuck. It's just repeating the same. I mean, look at all the, the sin and brokenness that is just repeated over and over and over in generation after generation after generation. I'm sure humanity is just putting their hands in the air. We can't get out of this cycle. We're stuck. We need someone. And that is why Jesus came. In the this, in this simplicity of the Christmas narrative is this profound truth that this is not just a cute story that we remember. Yes, oh, baby Jesus and the shepherds and the wise men and the, they went to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn and it warms our hearts. This goes so far beyond just the simplicity of the Christmas narrative. narrative. Jesus was not just a great man in a list of other you know, men from before. Jesus is God in the flesh. God come to save us. And the point of the Christmas story is that no one else could do it. You and I, we cannot save ourselves. I mean, pick the best name from this list, probably King David. And even he messed up royally. Like, he couldn't even do it. So no one else can do this. We cannot save ourselves. We need saving from outside of ourselves Even the good ones in the genealogy had brokenness and sin and evil in their lives. It had to be God himself. And so I just, it blows me away. Isn't it so like God to use simple, ordinary means To bring about salvation. I mean, isn't it so like God to list a name, the the names of just sinful, broken people? I mean, you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, God seems to delight in picking the worst things and and bringing about his plan. He goes to Israel and he says, I'm gonna pick you, not because you're great, not because you're an awesome nation. Actually, you're the smallest nation and I'm gonna choose you. It's like, why, God? Babylon, Assyria, they're way bigger, way more powerful. And God says, no, I'm going to use Israel. I mean, he goes to Abraham and Sarah, who are like in their 90s and barren. Hey, guess what? I'm going to use you to have a massive family. I mean, isn't that so like God to do? He just picks the most unassuming people to use to carry out his plans of redemption. And so this is what the Christmas season is about this is what we're remembering that Jesus had to come there was no other way for us to get free from this cycle of sin and brokenness and despair so lastly I want to encourage you because when you and I read this genealogy I mean there's just so much brokenness And even in all of our families, in all of our lives, personally, there is just so much brokenness. And like I said at the beginning, sometimes Christmas, this season, kind of just bubbles that brokenness to the surface sometimes. And many of us, if we're honest, if we're maybe, uh, even if we're followers of Jesus, or if you're new to the faith, or if you're checking out Christianity, many of you, when you look at sin and brokenness in your own life, and the family that you came from, many of you just feel disqualified. You go, well, I'm just too sinful. I'm too broken to come to God. I've had conversations with people where I've shared the gospel with them, and they've said things like, well, Andrew, you just, you don't know my history. You don't know the stuff that's in my past. You don't know the brokenness and the sin and the depravity that I've done or that I've come from. I'm just too sinful and broken to come to God. And here is what the Christmas season reminds us of. You're right. You are too broken and sinful to come to God, but the whole point of Christianity is that God came to us. Amen. I mean, this is the beauty of the gospel, that we look at our own lives and we go, I'm too sinful to make it. And the Bible would say, you're right. You can't make it. Thank goodness God himself came for you. He's not waiting for you to come to him. He came for you. And when you trust in Jesus and turn to him, regardless of your past, regardless of the sin and the brokenness And the depravity, regardless of the family that you come from, when you turn to Jesus and trust in Him, He forgives you and He welcomes you into His family. I mean, this is what we're remembering. And I think the genealogy of Jesus is just such a good reminder that this is all of us. We are just broken, sinful people. And God put on flesh and came into His own broken creation to save us and redeem us. So, Father, I just thank you um, for a list of names in the Bible. I mean, uh, on first glance, we can read Matthew 1 and just go, man, those are hard to pronounce, and what does it even mean? But God, I just thank you that it, it shows us the human condition without you. I mean, left to ourselves, um, we'll just... We'll devour ourselves. Our sin will just annihilate us. We will continue in more and more cycles of brokenness and depravity and sin. And there's, there's no hope outside of you, God. And so I thank you that in your perfect timing, you sent your son, Jesus. That, God, you weren't just wringing your hands looking at human history going, oh man, I better come up with something to fix this. But before the the foundation of the earth, you already had a plan to redeem us. And God, you providentially worked throughout history in the midst of sinful, depraved people to carry out your plan to bring your son Jesus into the world. And so Jesus, we thank you that you came. Uh, Because if you didn't, I mean, we would just still be stuck in the same sinful cycles and rebellion and depravity, throwing our hands in the air going, we can't fix this. And so, Jesus, thank you that you came. And as we celebrate your your birth, I mean, the, the cradle is always in the shadow of the cross. That's why you came. Jesus, you came with your eyes fixed on the cross to go to your death to save us. And so thank you, Jesus. I I pray for those of us who maybe feel disqualified or we've said things like, well, you just don't know the things I've done. You don't know the family that I come from. You don't know my lineage. You don't know the sin and brokenness in my life. I, I pray that we would have a right view that God, it's not us clawing our way to try and get to you, but God, you came to us to forgive us and to set us free so that regardless of our past and regardless of the things that we've done, that when we trust in you, Jesus, we're forgiven, we're made new, we're cleansed, and we're welcomed into your family. And so I pray this Christmas we would be reminded of that, that it would be an opportunity to worship you for how good you are to us, God. So I just thank you for our our time together in your word. Thank you for how encouraging it is, God, And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.